What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Today's episode is with legendary cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman. By the end of this episode, you are going to question everything you think you know about what is real life. Hoffman believes that this, your entire life, is all a simulation. Your parents, the food you eat, your kids if you have them, your favorite restaurant, all of it, it is all a simulation. When you look away, it all ceases to exist and is only re-rendered when you look at it again. His belief is that the mind creates the body, not the other way around. You heard that right. Ooh-wee. We go deep down the rabbit hole of consciousness, what it means to be living in the real matrix, and how he can prove that all of this is correct using mathematics. This episode is wild, and by the end, you are either going to assume Donald has lost the plot, or you're going to reevaluate your entire life, and quite frankly, life in general. And speaking of reevaluating your life, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the ad-free feed of Impact Theory on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, not only will you get ad-free versions of new episodes, but you'll also get access to curated playlists of the best of Impact Theory in categories like health, relationships, business, and finance. And you'll get access to additional bonus content you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Now, buckle up for Donald Hoffman. I'm your host, Tom Bilyeu, 
and welcome to Impact Theory. What we are are avatars of the one. The one awareness is exploring all of its possibilities through different avatars. So somehow there is this field of awareness that is, in some sense, deeply and fundamentally who you really are. What do you think about the AI scientists that signed the paper saying that we need to slow AI down because, and I had one of them on the show, because it passed a Turing test faster than they thought, it's just moving faster than they expected, and they're very worried. Do you think that AI will ever become conscious? I'm actually not too worried about AI right now myself, so I'm not one of the alarmists that, that says we need to stop and worry about it. The thing that would alarm me more would be if there were some kind of law that criminalized most people from doing it and let a few people do it, a few mm-hmm. companies do it. That, that that alarms me. So if there's going to be any kind of laws, they should be universal and no one should be excluded. Is that? But why, right, why aren't you worried about AI? It's pretty easy even with chat GPT to, to give it questions it can't answer right now. It's, it's basically a good statistical analyzer. It's not deeply intelligent. It will find things that we humans won't find in, in, in medical searches, you know, and so forth. But um, that's because it, it just can handle more data and, and do more statistical analysis than we can. But it's not deeply intelligent. And the, the founders would, would tell you that. It's, it's fairly straightforward kinds of algorithms. So, And in terms of consciousness, there is no theory right now of any kind that can ex- start with physical systems like circuits, software, and explain even one specific conscious experience, how it arises. So I'll be very, very clear. There's no theory on the planet today that can start with um, an artificial intelligence and a description of some kind of circuit or some kind of software pattern of activity and can give you a specific conscious experience like the taste of chocolate or the smell of garlic, where you would say this pattern of activity must be identical, must be the taste of chocolate. It could not be the smell of, of a rose. There's nothing on the table, and there's nothing even close. So if AIs can be conscious, there are no theories right now at all that could explain how that could possibly be, and nothing that makes it even plausible. So, so I'm not too, too worried about AIs being conscious. I think that they will eventually outperform humans in, in, in most everyday activities, uh, but simply because they'll have more compute power and can search more deeply than, than we can. Will, so for people that don't know you, um, I'm going to give a super brief synopsis and by all means put in where I go awry here, but you believe that this is all a simulation. We are living in a simulation. None of this is real. Space time itself is not real. We are effectively living inside of what you call the headset, right. that everything you've ever known or ever experienced is all effectively an illusion. It is a computer video game by way of analogy. Right. Given that, and, and audience listening at home, you will notice he did not say no. So, um, <laughs> and this is something I've, I have forever just dismissed out of hand that we're living in a simulation. And I say dismissed out of hand because I don't have any evidence to back it up. And I've heard all the arguments uh, from a mathematical perspective that if you believe that humans are capable of creating um, photorealistic simulations and you give any rate of progress whatsoever, we will eventually create a simulation. We certainly with AI and how rapidly it's been advancing, I think people now really have a sense of, whoa, 
we really are going to be able to do this. Uh, Apple Vision Pro certainly gives an indication like you will really be able to create some very compelling, very realistic um, things inside of a, a visor. So I think people more now more than ever could see how we could get into a simulation, a simulated world that's convincing. I'll leave it at that. And if that's true, then why would we then, once we create that simulation, not create another simulation? And I will just tell you, as somebody, the t-shirt that I'm wearing is literally about this. We're building a, a game that we hope over time will be a truly simulated world that people will go in, they will have an identity inside that game. Okay, so if we know that loop exists, then once the game inside the game gets powerful enough, it will do another simulation. Once the game inside that game, inside that game gets powerful enough, it will do a simulation. And so you end up in this point where just mathematically, it would make more sense to believe that you're in one of those, you know, conceivably infinite um, recursive loops of a simulation than that you're in base reality. But it just always seemed weird to me to say, no, 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 we're in one of the simulations. But the more I research you, the more I'm like, maybe we really are in a simulation. And to that point, you talk about consciousness as being fundamental. And so I'll need you to explain that for people that that will be so jarring. It will take them a while to really grok that, but that consciousness is fundamental. So couldn't AI ever become a window into what you call a conscious agent in the same way that a human child is or a dog is or whatever? That I think is possible. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, walk walk people through how it could be possible mm -hmm. that physicality, everything they see, touch, taste, the loves that they have, all of that is a simulation and not fundamental, meaning it, right. it arises out of something else. But consciousness is the, is the fundamental. The, yeah, the foundation. Well, there are two arguments for the idea that um, what we see is not an objective reality that exists independent of us and is there prior to when we look at it. So in physics, the Nobel Prize last December was given to three physicists for the experimental testing of a clean prediction of quantum theory that something called local realism is false. Local realism is the claim that physical objects like electrons have definite so realism is the claim that an electron has a definite value of position, momentum, and spin when it's not observed. And locality is the claim that those properties have influences that propagate through space-time no faster than the speed of light. And the conjunction of those two claims, the properties exist even when they're not perceived, even when they're not measured, and they have influences that propagate no faster than the speed of light, that's local realism, and local realism is false. How do they prove it? So that's why you get a Nobel Prize. So <laughs> John Clauser, Anton Zeilinger, and, and um, Alan Aspect, over decades, there's a, a string of, of, of experiments that were tighter and tighter. Each experiment closed loopholes in the previous ones. So the experiments have to deal with, they're, they're complicated experiments. I mean, Zeilinger was actually using photons from outer space <clears throat> to get entangled um, particles that, that they could use that you could ar couldn't argue that they were somehow you know being connected or correlated some in some deep way but basically <clears throat> the, the the experiments are set up to show that properties like position or momentum or spin typically they, they like to use spin um, 
in principle, could not have definite values until you actually measured them. Mm-hmm. So one way that they do this mathematically are there these Bell inequalities. And so if if the statistics of the correlations between the particle spins, you have two different particles that you're measuring the spin axis, for example. And if they had definite values, even when you weren't observing, you'd have certain pattern of correlation. And if <clears throat> quantum mechanics is right, and those values don't exist until you measure them, then you have a different pattern of correlation. And so that's what they, they do. They have to look at a bunch of different measurements, look at the correlations, and the correlations come out to be what's, what quantum theory predicts mm-hmm. and not what our classical intuitions would tell us. And so the this was done by Clauser decades ago, but it's so counterintuitive that people are going, okay, well, there must be a loophole here. So then they closed a series of loopholes. And finally, they started getting photons from like distant galaxies where the photons couldn't possibly have certain within space-time um, causal connections and closed that loophole. And um, so that's one, one, one direction. So physicists tell us that Local realism, at least for microscopic, you know, subatomic particles. Recently, they've gotten up to groups of 700 um, atoms, I believe. So it's it's starting to they're they're showing that these effects, um, so the superposition effects of quantum theory, are not just at the very very small end of things. So local realism is false. Now one can still try to say, well, but that's for really tiny things, but at the macroscopic level, maybe local realism is true. And that leads to a problem because there's no principal distinction in quantum theory between the microscopic and the macro. You can't say at 10 to the minus, you know, 20 centimeters, that's, you know, that's that's the limit. There's there's no boundary between micro and macro. Mm. So, and this is a, a well known open problem. So that's one direction. I'll just go with that. Now, the um, the the other direction of argument is from evolution by natural selection, where you can ask a technical question. Evolution shapes sensory systems to guide adaptive behavior. So that means to keep you alive long long enough. Um, to reproduce, right? So you you have vision and touch and hearing and smell, and they've been shaped so that um, you're able to get the food you need, mate, and stay alive at least long enough to reproduce and, and pass your genes on to the next generation. That's the standard story of evolution. Many theorists also think that evolution shapes our sensory systems to tell us truths about objective reality. When I see an apple, that's because there really is an apple, and the the red color and the shape really exist, even when they're not perceived. And so that's notice that's a step beyond just saying that our senses evolved to guide adaptive behavior. They're, they want to say more than that. They want to say that if you guide adaptive behavior, you're going to see the truth. So so I decided with my colleagues Chaitan Prakash and Manish Singh and Robert Prentner and others. Um, my graduate students, Justin Mark and Brian Marion, um, to to test this. Um, you know, evolution is a mathematically precise theory. We have evolutionary game theory. So there's a technical question. What is the probability that um, evolution by natural selection would shape any sensory system to see truths about objective reality, the structure of objective reality? And um, it's straightforward to prove um, 
what, what we do is we look at various kinds of so-called fitness payoff functions. Um, maybe payoff functions that are that are, and we can ask: Do these payoff functions preserve certain kinds of structures in the world, like um, orders, a total order, or or a, a partial order, or a metric, or a topology, or or a measurable structure? So we can say we don't know what objective reality is, but suppose it had this structure. What is the probability that fitness payoffs, which govern our evolution, would actually have information about that structure in the world so that, that we could actually be evolved to have some insight into that structure of objective reality? And in case after case, the answer is um, probability is zero. The, there, there are payoff functions that would preserve the structure, but those payoff functions have probability zero in the set of all payoff functions. So, so that means if you're a betting man, um, you would bet long odds against it. So it doesn't mean that it can't happen. It's just that the probability is is zero. And so I take this as a convergence between two of our big theories in science, evolution by natural selection and quantum theory, quantum field theory. Both are telling us that local realism is false. And so, so I think a good metaphor then is, as you were saying, um, like a user interface or, or a video game where you render on the fly what you need. So I'm looking at you, I'm rendering a Tom face, and I look away, and I'm not rendering it. Someone else might be looking at you, and they're rendering their Tom face, but, but their Tom face is not the same as mine. It's going to be at a different angle and so forth. So we render on the fly, and that's what physics is telling us, basically, that local realism is false. We render on the fly. And so the where you're taking that from is the quantum uncertainty principle, basically. Everything has a probability of being in a given state. And the reason that it's just a big question mark uh, is because nothing's looking at it. So it does not need to render that. It doesn't need to decide the system, which is the simulation, um, which people think of as space-time, but they're almost certainly, I've interviewed you so many times and I know how hard it is to escape uh, this matrix, but they're thinking of things within space-time being real. But once you start looking at space-time as purely a simulation and that the then rendering only happens when you look at something. So that to me makes a hypothesis that I think your data backs up, which if that were really the case, then um, I understand why big things would adhere to what seem like a different set of rules where things are static and small things would not because it, you're far less likely to observe a first order consequence of something microscopic. You may be observing a second or third order consequence, which raises questions for me that I'm sure we will get to at some point, but just to close the loop on that. So first order consequence, I can look up and see the moon. I see planets, I see stars. And so for that to be persistent, which is going to be a big thing in, in our discussion today, this is like the prime thing I want to talk to you about is persistence and what that means. But big things will need to be persistent. And therefore, there has to be, there is a constant collapsing of its probabilities uh, because there are so many things that require, even if it's just its effects on gravity, there's so many things, quote unquote, witnessing that or measuring that. So I get why those would be stable. But then things where they're so small that there's very little that hinges on that, that, that would need to be directly rendered that would need to, because you can get away with sort of the probabilistic rendering of the big things and their um, influence by these smaller things, but you don't need a direct representation of the spin, for instance, uh, of a particle that that all things that would quote unquote measure it don't see, don't interact with or whatever, because nobody's effectively looking at it. It does not need to be rendered. Right. So a good 
So did that all feel right just to... No, or, that's a great question. And, and so Great question. I was not asking a question. I was stating a hypothesis. About Do you think I'm crazy or no, I think does, does that make sense at the macro to the micro level? Well, it, 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 it does, but I think a good analogy here that might help clarify the, the issue is, is, so in, say, Grand Theft Auto, right? I look over, I'm playing with somebody who's you know, in Canada and somebody else is in Europe and someone else is in China. We're all playing a remote version of it and virtual reality and i look over and i see a red porsche to my right and so i say is there a red porsche on my right and the guy in china says oh yeah i see a red porsche and the guy in canada agrees and the guy in europe agrees as well so of course each of them is rendering their own red porsche so there is some reality that's coordinating all of these perceptions right so the guy in canada didn't see a red porsche until he looked but when he looked um there was the this whole world you know, of circuits and software that you don't see. There's some supercomputer that's coordinating the whole thing. How's it coordinating? In that particular metaphor, right, the, there's a supercomputer that's, that's taking the inputs from like your headset. What, what direction are you looking with your headset? Maybe you've got a bodysuit, so it's looking at your arm movements and so forth. And it's feeding all that into a supercomputer where it's got a model of the game. And in that model, there's some red portion model. Of course, there's no red portion in the computer. And it knows then how to coordinate and send the photons to your headset in Canada and my headset in Irvine and someone else's headset in, in China so that we have this notion of a persistent reality of a Porsche, even though individually for each one of us, um, local realism is false. The Porsche doesn't even exist until I render it. And there's no red Porsche inside the supercomputer. So that's sort of the idea is that's, that space-time is just a headset, and there's behind space-time, there's going to be an incredibly complicated realm to explore that's as least as complicated, more complicated as like the supercomputer is to my little headset. The headset is sophisticated, it's beautiful technology, but the supercomputer is you know, a really, really powerful thing. And the same thing will be true of space-time. It's just our headset, but if we look beyond that headset, we're going to, you know, be finding a realm that's far more complicated. So in some sense, science up till now has only studied our headset. We've studied inside space and time. Mm. We're taking our first baby steps to start to explore. We, we've, we've cut our teeth in science on, on studying our headset. We learned the tools in the last three or 400 years about experiments and clean mathematical theories and the loop between experiments and theories. But we thought we were studying objective reality. We were studying our headset. But now we have the tools to actually take a first step beyond space-time and start to find structures beyond space-time and their projection back into space-time. And so from that point of view, our view that objects in space-time, um, we've taken that to be the fundamental reality, will look sort of parochial, um, hopefully in just a few decades. We'll, yeah, I think the next generation where um, many people will have spent a lot of time in virtual reality my generation didn't spend a lot of time in virtual reality. So this is a hard concept. But if you've spent- I don't, I've heard you say that before. I don't think that's going to get people where you think it's going to get them. Maybe not. Uh, but in this episode, I want to try to explain why mm. I think that and and get um, your take. So here's what I think we need to do first, and then we'll go okay. even deeper. There's two things we need to do in the near term. Um, one, I think we- we need to, in, in our previous um, interviews, we spent a lot of time dealing with the headset. So for anybody that's sort of confused on that idea of you're living in a simulation, 
everything that you know and love and touch and have ever experienced, it is all a simulation. You have never existed outside of the headset. So if right there, your brain breaks, go watch the other episodes. We spend a <laughs> tremendous amount of time building that right, up. Right. Um, but for now, what I want to do is say, okay. okay, I'm going to assume that you get it, that your whole life is basically Grand Theft Auto. Okay. And people understand it. You've been in there playing the game and they understand the difference between playing the game and the computer um, rules and things that give birth to that game. And so that's that's the difference. What I want to do now is map that one layer back. So I want to take that idea of your life is Grand Theft Auto, but there's this thing called space-time that's outside of it and get to what you're actually saying, which is that same relationship, but move back one very profound level. Because what it does is it inverts everything. And what it says is that the universe, the universe, space-time, is an emergent phenomenon from consciousness, that consciousness is in this, to use that analogy, just to map it back, that consciousness is the quote unquote computer and rules of the system. And then the simulation is what we all think of as real life. Okay. So that's where we're mapping. So right, one, sure. does, does that track for you that we can move that analogy sort of one rung deeper is probably the word you'd be most comfortable with. Right. So absolutely, a model in which we take consciousness as fundamental, and we have a mathematical model of consciousness, and we then try to show how space-time gets rendered from that. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So now, in this interview, instead of making our references to Grand Theft Auto, unless we need to for whatever, for an anchor point, I want to talk about space-time okay. like a simulation. Okay, I want to sure. talk about space-time like it is Grand Theft Auto, because researching you this time, I... I want to sit with it for a while before I start saying I'm 100% behind it. And right, I mentioned right. one of our previous interviews that I do revert to the mean after I spend time with you. But each time you're, <laughs> you're shifting me farther where my mean is sort of closer to you. Mm -hmm. This time, at least in the research, I had a real sense of he's right. Hmm. I, I don't know about the, the consciousness is the only part that we may disagree. Sure. But that I, you really gave me an internally consistent set of logic points for why space-time is the simulation. And when I grant you a few base assumptions that we'll go through, my own worldview makes more sense. Okay. And so I realized for the first time, again, fully acknowledging that I may revert to the mean once I've interviewed three or four other people on totally different <laughs> topics, and this has sort of cleared my system. But right now as we do this, I really felt like you improved what I consider a prediction engine. I think of the human mind as a prediction engine, and the closer you get to baseline truth, the more you're able to predict the outcome of your behaviors. What I'm watching happening with AI, which is why I wanted to start there, mm -hmm. I can't make sense. I don't, when I think about a hallucinating AI, I'm like, I don't understand. When I think about AI pulling patterns out of noise, I don't understand. When persistence is difficult for AI, I don't understand. And then I research you and click, click, click. Those pieces fall into place when I assume that it's all already a simulation and that AI is simply revealing to me how the simulation works. And so, but the fact that we disagree, or maybe we don't, I think AI will be windows into consciousness. I think AI is leveraging your own theories what? to create AI right now as we're talking about it. I think I'm a lay person. Everybody needs to take this with a huge grain of salt. Trust me, I am well aware of my limitations. Uh, but I think right now mm -hmm. that what we're witnessing with things like stable diffusion, where 
AI is creating an image out of the infinite possibilities that exist within this, the, the possibility space of noise. Okay, for people that don't understand how stable diffusion works, that's how it works, is it dips into the noise to find a pattern and then solidifies that pattern to reveal, is this what you wanted? And what I'm saying is when I research you, I realize, oh my God, that's precisely what your theory predicts in the idea of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which I have struggled with so hard in the previous interviews, I feel bad for everybody that has to watch me go through that. But the more I feel like I can grasp why you keep coming back to it and why this sort of infinite possibility space is so important to understand, when I watch AI pull a static image out of infinite possibility, I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what you've been trying to describe. Okay, put a pin in that because what I want to talk about now is consciousness as fundamental because this is the part, if people are really paying attention, this is the part that will change your worldview. To to get into the the, um, space-time as a construct, as a simulation, you first have to understand that you think that's born of the, as born of consciousness itself. And I please, dear audience, stick with this because this point is going to be very important as we piece together the predictions that your own model is going to make, but they have to understand this first. So how is it possible that consciousness, the thing that I think everybody intuits comes from stacking neurons, 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 and you pass through a cricket, an ant, a mouse, a cat, a dog, a dolphin, a gorilla, and humans. It just feels like, oh, just stack more neurons. And then you're ultimately going to get these more sophisticated neurons, which give you a more sophisticated consciousness. That seems so self-evident and you're to me. But you're saying, nope. No. And, and by the way, I'll just, on the pin, I'll just mention that I agree with you that AIs could actually give us a window into consciousness, but they won't create consciousness. That was, all, that was all I was saying. Interesting. So the, I think we disagree about that. Okay. So, you're so, so we can much go more into that. thoughtful. Okay. And so much farther ahead. When we get there, I will yeah, lay out my absolutely. ignorant okay. perspective. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses, and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today. And get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com 
dot com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. So on consciousness being fundamental. Um, Meaning that's all there is. That That's right. So the idea would be, um, and this is, by the way, in some sense, not new, Leibniz, in his monadology, um, had the same idea. So I really appreciate that you assume I know what that means. And from context, I can tease it out. But can you tell us what that means? Oh, so so Leibniz was this genius, um, contemporary of Newton, sort of a antagonistic. They they both invented calculus at roughly the same time. There was a question about who was first and so forth. And they 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 were you know sort of. At each other, but but they were say they were contemporaries. But Leibniz um, had this idea that that consciousness couldn't emerge from physical systems. He has a, a famous argument of the mill, where he he in one paragraph basically dismisses the idea that objects inside space and time, like neurons, for example, could create consciousness. For him, it was so obvious that he spent a paragraph on it, and moved on, and then he's got a. A book called the Monadology, where he was proposing uh, essentially that consciousness perceiving entities are the fundamental reality, and that they were interacting. All right. Um, if I break down the words monadology, a mo, uh, monad, so M O N A D is a technical term for, it, for him. It, it was he. It was a new term for him. Uh, monadology is then the book's name, Monadology, um, and it was basically it was a dynamics. It was a, a strange dynamics. We called a pre-established harmony, where God. So he had he brought God in on on his thing, I believe, to to sort of coordinate um, all the the perceptions of these. So meaning God was the first mover, the fundamental. Yeah, the, the fundamental. Thing. Right. Okay, right. but he saw it as a creator, uh, touching things with like a divine spark of consciousness. Yeah, but his ontology was that that. Um, the fundamental reality beyond space-time was these monads, the, these perceiving entities, basically. And but but God, I think, was that was the deepest reality for for Leibniz. Um, there, I'm less secure. Mm. The monol- I, I'm not sure exactly what his thoughts were on God, but I believe Fair. that's what he said. Um, so I just brought that up just to say that you know we're not the first to, to have this kind of idea. Centuries ago, uh, Leibniz, with his monadology, had an idea that perceiving entities. Experiencing entities could be more fundamental than than um, the physical space time world. All right, you talk about conscious agents. Right. Do you mean exactly that same thing? That's right. So conscious agents are um, a a mathematically precise statement of what we mean by consciousness. Right. So as a scientist, it's it's not enough for me just to say, okay, there's consciousness beyond space time and it's fundamental. I have to write down a mathematical description of what I mean by that. So what aspect of consciousness do I take to be fundamental and and what's the mathematical description? So if I was if you think about it, think about consciousness, there's of course experiences, um, there's learning, memory, problem solving, intelligence, maybe free will. Uh, there's lots of things, the, the notion of a self, all these things that you might think a theory of consciousness needs to 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 incorporate. I'm so sorry, and I, I should have done this before, and that apology goes to the audience. If you're new to Donald, it's probably worth just a quick sentence about what consciousness is. Oh, 
Well, so I would say consciousness is um, the ability to have experiences, like the taste of chocolate, a headache, um, emotions. So this thing feels like something. Yeah, it's, it, the way a lot of philosophers will talk about it is, it's, is to have conscious experience. There's something it's like to be a conscious entity. It's something. It's, there's something it's like to have a headache. There's something it's like to have your, um, you know, to eat, to have a nice cup of coffee or something like that. Okay, and so let's call that qualia. Again, yes, me right. stealing directly from you, right, right. but just so we have words, because qualia is going to become very important as we get into your paper and all of that. Okay, so back to conscious agents. So what we decided to do was uh, we don't want to throw the kitchen sink in our mathematical definition. So we took what we felt was the bare minimum starting point. There are experiences like the taste of chocolate, smell of garlic, and so forth. And those experiences affect the probabilities of other experiences occurring. So there are experiences and probabilistic relationships among experiences. That's it. So we're not bringing in the notion of a self, learning, memory, problem-solving, intelligence, none of that. What we're saying is, yeah, all that stuff is important, but we have to prove how it arises from just experiences and probabilistic relationships among experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's, as a scientist, you try, it's it's what we call Occam's razor. You want to have the minimum number of assumptions at the start of your theory. Every theory has assumptions. There are the miracles of the theory. We want as few miracles as possible, right? So our only miracles are, well, it's a big miracle. There are experiences and probabilistic relationships among experiences. And we formalize that. Um, the experiences, um, we just write down what's called probability spaces. We can, If you want, we can talk about probability spaces. And the relationships among experiences are what we call um, Markovian kernels, and we, we get what's called Markov chain. So it's very simple dynamics. So we'll, we'll explain what Markovian dynamics are in a second. I don't, now that I finally have at least a tiny bit of a grasp, I don't know how important it is that people understand that. Sure. But I do want to know how important is it that uh, one bit of qualia impacts other qualia? Like, does that, does that relationship play heavily into the idea of consciousness as a fundamental agent? Yes, we, we stipulate that as a fundamental property that, that experiences aren't in a vacuum. Experiences probabilistically lead to other experiences. Okay. It's very interesting that you said uh, not in a vacuum because that my whole thesis is that the construct of space-time, the simulation, let's just be very clear, the simulation that is this real world Sorry, that's a terrible use of the word real. The simulation that everybody lives in and experiences is required. This is this is my pitch. Uh, the simulation is a required constraint in order to give context yeah. that something can be like anything, but that for consciousness to explore the possibility space of qualia, you have to have a rule set Mm-hmm. And the rule set that yep. we're all in, which may be one of a gazillion headsets, but the rule set that we're all in creates the possibility for the subset of qualia that we as human beings or lizards or whatever experience. But without that rule set that is space-time, right, we right. would not have enough limitations right. to give us the context in order to feel a certain way. Exactly. Exactly. 
That, that's, that's a very good way to put it. So that um, a lizard presumably sees things very, very differently than I do. Pigeons have four color receptors. We only have three. Pigeons have four? Yeah, that's right. So they see more color than we do. Birds. Some bullshit. I feel cheated now. Pigeons? <laughs> well, we, I knew 15% of women do. I did not know pigeons. Yeah, the mantis shrimp has more than 10. Photoreceptors? Yes, that's right. Different kinds of, or, or, or pigments that are, that are used for, for the photoreception process. So, so we're, we're, we may be cheated in, in many, many ways. That's um, for sure. So, so yeah, we, uh, and, and we don't, for example, perceive um, polarization of light. And birds and maybe bees do as they, they can perceive the polarization of light. Hmm. Um, we can't directly experience electric fields. And there are, there are animals in the water that can do that. So some that see infrared, some that see ultraviolet that we can't. So so we're you know, we have a very very small window, and and other animals are not restricted to the windows in which we we see. So I like your idea that there there's an an infinite space of conscious experiences to explore, and when we look at different animals, we're seeing different explorations with different headsets, and and different as you say different constraints, and it's it's um, in some sense consciousness. Exploring all of its possibilities, all the possible um, ways that uh, to, to explore. So, in in some sense, uh, we're here for the ride, and we should enjoy the ride. We're we're, we're you know we're exploring. Um, we, we thought this was the final reality. No, this is just one of countless possible headsets. Just one of countless, and um, we'll enjoy this ride, and then um, consciousness will then it's looking through other headsets. So I like your idea yeah, yeah, that, that it's, you know, there's some kind of consistency, some kind of coherence, but it's a subset of the experiences. There's an infinite number of experiences to explore. So um, this ride never ends. Mm. Okay. So when I think about consciousness as fundamental, I cannot help but imagine a blob that then takes shape in the form of a human or a lizard or an avocado, whatever. Um Help me understand what do you have an image in your head of what the what consciousness is? Is it just completely non-physical? Well, maybe the closest I can get that would be the way that we communicate to people would be um, if you go into an entirely quiet room, shut off all the lights, close your eyes, and get very, very still mm. and don't think. Good luck. That's right. Usually, letting go of thought is not easy. Um, but but if you can go for a few seconds or a minute with absolutely no thought, and now you're just aware, you realize, yeah, I can be aware without being aware of anything in particular. I I am fundamentally awareness, and into that awareness, right now, are coming a cup, a microphone, a table. I can close my eyes and those are those are gone from awareness. So somehow there is this field of awareness that is in some sense deeply and fundamentally who you really are. That so that it th- seems like your theory would say that's false. Well, it's going to say that the con- so the, the reason why I talk about this awareness is that when we talk about all these specific conscious experiences we have to write down something that's called a probability space. First, we're, we're required mathematically to do that. So we write down a probability space in which probability all- Probability of qualia. 
That's right. Probability of qualia. So you have to write down the space of all the potential qualia that this particular conscious agent could experience. So here is this space, and it's, it, there's the mathematical structure. It's just sitting there prior to any particular experience happening. It's just sitting there. And it took me a few years to ask myself the question, what is that space? I had to write it down. I couldn't do the math. I couldn't write down my Markovian dynamics until I wrote down the probability spaces. But as a, you know, the way we do it is we just, of course, you have to write that down so you don't even think about it. You write down the probability space and you, you go on to the fun stuff. You, you write down now the dynamics and so forth. Starts. But a few years later, I came back and go, well, wait a minute. I went too quickly on this first part. I had to write down a probability space. What does that mean? Because this is a space prior to any specific conscious experiences happening. Mm. And so the best I can say right now is that perhaps is the mathematical counterpart to what I was just describing, which is the awareness that you can experience prior to having any particular specific conscious experience arise in that awareness. So that's, that's why I, I talk about it in, in that way. Um, can I um, just restate that to make sure that sure. I understand and uh, linger on it for a second for the audience? So you're using words that I know you know are dangerous, that Annika Harris has warned you about letting people carry the sense of self into all this. Uh, right. Because you said you are the awareness, but really consciousness is the awareness that animates me in some way, or it needs my constraints in order for it to experience the qualia. I think that's the right way to think about it. And so in those moments where either through meditation, I get to true, where I am simply aware of the qualia of being aware, but when it's not aware of anything in particular, so I'm not aware that my foot hurts. I'm not aware that my um, my stomach is churning on food. I'm not aware of something I need to do later in that day. I am just, the the potential to point that awareness at something is the thing that I'm sitting in, that that's who we really are. So that that feels right, but I know it, it's re-trapping me in my sense of self that I am a real thing. Your right. whole thing clicks into place for me when I realize that according to your theory, and this makes a lot of things make sense in my own life, I am simply one instantiation right. Right. that creates a set of what I call biological limitations right. that then once I have those constraints, now the fundamental element of consciousness can begin to explore its qualia. The, the different things that like, oh, in this human form, I can experience these things. And with all the context that this person has, he responds to this thing in this way. Right. Um, Agreed. There are some deep complexities with that, but we'll push those off for later. Okay. So if, if that's where we're at, my fundamental question is, why does consciousness, why is it compelled to explore these qualia states? That's the $64,000 question. That's so... I don't know, but I, I can. I'm, of course, that's the very natural question to, to ask, and and I agree with what you just said. I said, I mean, I don't want to reify the self. What what we are are avatars of the one, effectively, and the one consciousness is the one awareness is exploring all of its possibilities through different avatars. Why? 
There, I, you know, I think there may be some deep mathematical reasons. So it may be that, I mean, there's, there are theorems to the effect that no system can completely know itself. It's impossible. So, because, for example, if I if I have a computer and I want the computer to explore itself, how is it going to know itself? Well, it's going to have to build a model of itself and write down what. It, well, in the very process of building a model of itself and writing into its memory things about itself, it's becoming more complicated. It's changing itself. So now, to really understand itself, it's going to have to now describe what it just did. And now to so you get this infinite loop. Um, and so there are there are problems with self-understanding. It's not possible, in, in many cases, provably not possible, to have a complete understanding of yourself. You, you get into this infinite loop of, now I have to be more complicated to understand myself after I just understood myself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's one direction of this. Another direction is um, there are there's a whole hierarchy of infinities. Um, so the, the integers like so one, two, three, up to infinity, that's an infinite number of integers. We, we call that a countable infinity, or aleph zero, um, the Hebrew letter aleph, and zero just meaning the smallest infinity. But there are other infinities. So the next, if you take um, the set of all subsets of integers, so like one, two, and one, five, and two, three, four, look at all the possible subsets of integers and ask how many subsets are there? How many subsets of, of integers can you come up with? It turns out that, of course, there's an infinite number of, of these subsets. Because every number is divisible by an infinite number of subsets? No, we're just grouping them together. So I'm saying, look, 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 think about the group one and two. So that's a group. Now one and five. Got it. So that's we can group an infinite number that's an infinite number of times. So those are called the, all the different possible subsets of the integers. Got it. And there's, of course... An infinite number of them because one is a group, two is a group, three. So we already know there's an infinite number, but there's more than that. How much more? It turns out it's a bigger infinity. So the it's a bigger infinity. It's a it's a bigger. Say what? That well, that's what mathematicians said when Cantor, the, the mathematician who first came up with this, um, when he first proved this, it feels a bit like my speaker goes to eleven. Why not just take make ten louder? But this one goes. The, this to one 11. goes. It's a, actually a different size of infinity. And How's so, that possible? I literally can't wrap my head around that. There is something um, called a, a Cantor's diagonal argument. So, it, so there's a simple diagonal argument where you can actually show on, pa on paper, pen and paper, that um, it's impossible um, to capture all the power set, this bigger infinity, um, with the smaller infinity. So he gives what's called a Cantor's diagonal. So if people want to, you know. Check me on this. You just look up Cantor and Cantor's diagonal argument for a proof that there are these bigger infinities. Um, and you can actually, I think most people can actually follow the proof. I mean, it's, it's mind-bending, but um, you can follow it. Well, there's not just one bigger infinity. That's ALF1 is the bigger infinity. Now, take the power set. So, by the way, taking the set of all subsets is called taking the power set. So, the power set is all the possible subsets. So now I've got ALF1, which is the bigger infinity, which is the power, all the power sets of ALF0. But now I can take all the power set, the power set of ALF1. That gives me ALF2. Take the power set again at ALF3, ALF4, and this goes forever. So there, so infinity is not one thing. There's an infinite, unending hierarchy of ever larger infinities. So we have to, my my view, 
take this into account in our theory of consciousness. That this, this, all of these different infinities are valid directions for projection of this one deeper consciousness. And so we're going to. So the answer to your question may again be because Cantor's hierarchy never ends. This exploration never ends. The exploration of the possibilities of consciousness of qualia is, in principle, never ending. So I get the never. But again, part. I the, I would just say um, I'm in deep water here, and I'm maybe over my head. Fair enough. I- you guys know I am super selective when it comes to my diet, and I am extremely thoughtful about what I put into my body because you are literally what you eat. You are what you eat. I cannot stress it enough. Your cells are actually made of the things you eat. So make sure that the things you're eating are of the highest quality. And when it comes to high quality, a trustworthy source of animal-based protein, I cannot recommend ButcherBox highly enough. My wife, Lisa, and I go hard in the paint on ButcherBox. Nearly half of my daily calories come from ButcherBox because they go above and beyond to source the highest quality meats and seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Every month, you can let ButcherBox curate a box of high-quality cuts for you, or you can customize your own box with the exact cuts you want, which is Lisa and I's favorite option. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. Go hard, guys. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level. So eat better this year with the best meat and seafood on the planet delivered directly to your door. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact this is the the fun part of exploring this is how what are the predictions that are made based on the hypothesis right so every hypothesis makes a prediction and then you have something you can test and it becomes verifiable so 
this is where it gets very interesting to me is okay. what the predictions are that it makes. So going back to um, the hypothesis that I have that, okay, maybe this really is all a simulation because as we go to build the next simulation, it actually tells us more. It, it gives me a better way to understand what's already happening. Now, again, I'm a lay person, so I may be way out of my own depth here, but I think people will be able to follow the internal logic. So this is what I was stating earlier about AI. So the way that AI works is there is an infinite possibility space in noise. So you can just think of it as a screen. And that screen can have, think of every conceivable pixel that's there. And depending on what color you make any one of those pixels, if you have like a grand enough resolution, meaning enough pixels in a finite space, that you can recreate any image that's ever been seen mm -hmm. or created mm -hmm. or even just what's possible. So if anybody's seen um, what they call an AI hallucination, where the AI will just continually like push into itself and every time it pushes in and a pattern begins to emerge, it then crystallizes that pattern and basically says the most likely shape to emerge out of this would be a staircase. But as you push in, the most likely shape to emerge out of that would be a cathedral. And, and it just keeps going and going and going and going. And it never runs out of sort of most likely things to emerge out of this pattern is because it's looked at all of these things. And so it will create things that it's seen before. So the Mona Lisa would be one representation right. that is very predictable, especially given how many times the Mona Lisa has been replicated. So one of the things in the possibility space is the Mona Lisa, is a Rembrandt, is David, is you looking at your wife this morning is one of the possibility spaces that it could eventually draw out of this thing. So it's it's constantly searching for what is the next potential pattern. Now, my whole thing is what really starts to make this interesting and the reason that I think that the simulation isn't something to be brushed aside as being trivial, but is critically important. If you're right, that what the what consciousness is doing is it has some motivation for some reason that neither of us know why, but that it is cycling through all of its permutations. If that's what's really happening, then to do that, you need a set of rules. And so what I realize is I'm building the going back to the Grand Theft Auto. So we're building a simulated world. And I realize as we build it, all I'm doing is making the most detailed if this, then that statements. And so I'm trying to create these algorithms that then not trick you, but they give you a set of rules by which you now must adhere. But by doing that, by actually limiting the possibility space, I can make a game that's quote unquote fun. So it is in the limitation, it's in the setting of rules that this becomes a useful space. So what I want to know is you, you talk a lot about like, Hey, we want to get out of the headset. Do you really, do you want to get out of the headset or do you want to manipulate the headset? Well, when I say we want to get out of the headset, that's as a scientist trying to look for a deeper theory. So as a scientist, I mean, we've, Science is but let me ask you, so the reason that Einstein, his breakthroughs were so useful is within the headset, they let us do something. Are you trying to do something in the headset? Or so if you understand how the headset works, you can either manipulate the, like Einstein, bend space time, 
right? You can create GPS, which if you didn't understand relativity, you would not be able to do. Um, and that made the atom bomb possible. It made nuclear energy possible. It made GPS possible, his breakthroughs. Are you trying to do a breakthrough that has headset implications or are you searching a breakthrough that has get out of the headset implications? Both. So what I want to do is, is get a theory of what's beyond, at least a baby step beyond the headset. Presumably, as I mentioned, there's a Cantor's hierarchy of infinity. So we have infinite job security going beyond the headset. That's, it's literally an un, unending job. But to take a step entirely outside of the headset, then as, as you point out, as a scientist, I need to make predictions back in the headset because that's the only place we can do experiments. To prove that you're to get, right, basically. Well, to, to – I don't – you can never prove that you're right. But, but to, to sort of what we say – scientists would say to, to get confirmation of your theories, which is not proof, but to, to say um, you're not stupid. You, you seem it, to be on the good track. predicts the things that we already understand. That's right. And hopefully makes novel predictions about things that we don't currently understand. That's right. We should be able to get quantum field theory back as a special case. We get Einstein's theory of general relativity as a special case. Uh, evolution of natural selection as a special case. We should, or generalizations of these theories within space-time. So, so yes, we're, we're going for the first baby step outside of space-time in terms of a scientific theory – but of course, we have to project it back into space-time where we can do experiments in a better look um, like evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory or understandable generalizations of those theories um, or we're wrong, right? So so the, you might say, well, yeah, if you go outside of space-time, you can do anything. You have all the fun you want. You can do anything you want to. Um, no, you can't. You can. You need to tie it back to what we can perceive inside our headset um, so that, that's where we're headed. But um, as I said, there's infinite job security. And, and so I view myself as, as just looking for the, a first baby step mm. outside of the headset. Science for, for centuries has only studied our headset because space-time is our headset. But in the last 10 years, physics has gone beyond. We've talked before about the amplituhedron and decorated permutations and other, other structures that physicists are finding. These are not the final word. Again, these are the first baby steps outside of our headset. And they will be, of course, refined and eventually superseded. Hmm. All right. So there's one of these things that I think I've I've grasped enough that I can present it to people as one of the first baby steps. So in physics, one of the things they're constantly doing is smashing particles together to try to see what happens when those particles collide in the hopes that it will reveal smaller and smaller elements of the building blocks of the universe. Uh, which will then help us understand what the the sort of fundamental makeup of space-time is. And as they look at this data, what they found is uh, that there are patterns in that data that replicate endlessly. And you smash these together and the the collisions, there's so much data. At first, it seems impossible. Just uh, so much data to wade through. We'll never understand anything. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait, there's only so many patterns once you take those, mm -hmm. like once you group those shatters, like if you think of it this way, if every time you broke a mirror, it broke into the same pattern, you'd be like, wait a second. And am I understanding it correctly that that's what happens when you collide particles? Statistically, yes. Right. So it's not exactly, but 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 you you can use statistics to show that there are these statistical commonalities to the interactions. Absolutely. Okay, walk us through that and why does that matter? 
Well, for physicists, of course, this is some of their most fundamental data. So there, what are particles? Particles, Eugene Wigner taught us, are what he called you know, irreducible representations, unitary representations of the group of symmetries of space-time, what they call the Poincaré group. It's essentially, particles are like the, the simplest things allowed by the symmetries of space-time, the simplest entities allowed. And so in some sense, by studying these particles, we're really studying the nature of space-time itself and the structure of space-time. Um, and so when they, for example, in the Large Hadron Collider, they will um, smash protons together, or they will um, they'll also you know, sometimes have an electron and smash it into a proton and, at, at high energies. And when you do that at high enough energies, you destroy the proton. It actually falls apart. And you see all these particles scattering up, things like quarks and, and gluons and mesons and so forth. And so you can look at the angles that these particles are spraying out at and look at, for example, do they have uh, you know, a spin, a magnetic charge what's their do they have a mass so you can sort of you can look at all the and then when when you start looking at all the data you begin to see patterns in the data and and so we see you know for example it was a big surprise to physicists that inside the proton there were these things that they now call quarks but the quarks in some sense at least at the energies that that are available to us can't be on their own you can't have like quarks flying out on their own. There's something called quark confinement. And that was a big, big discovery. So quarks, like in, in a proton, there are three quarks, two up and one down. A neutron has two down and one up. And, but if, if, you, if the quark escapes, if it's trying to get away, um, the force of attraction between two quarks grows with the distance. Hmm. And the energy, well, the the force doesn't grow. The energy, so the force doesn't. Normally, we think of the force. The force, so the force doesn't grow. The force remains constant, and so the energy, the the potential energy, it keeps growing and growing as you as you move these particles apart. And so, so at some point, they snap, and you you create all that energy goes and creates a new quark. Say, Hmm. so so then they pair off. So it's it's very very strange um, this, this quark confinement thing. So one reason we do experiments is because I mean who ordered that? We 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 wouldn't have like guessed uh, uh, you know quark confinement. And so but we we found quark confinement, and it's still being studied. I mean trying to understand that there's a theory that if we get at really really high energies, um, they won't be confined. But but those are energies that um, we currently are nowhere near. And we have no analytic proof right now of quark confinement for what, what are called non-abelian gauge theories. So, so one of the big open questions in physics is to actually prove this analytically. Um, that that so they they have lattice gauge models that that uh, of this that show it, and 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 they they have other cases where they the experiments and the theory convince them it's the truth, but we don't actually have the final analytic proof of this in what's called non-abelian gauge um, theories. So so that's still a, an interesting open question. But that's why physicists are, are doing this. These particles are really probing, in some sense, the fundamental nature of space-time itself. And so they look at, at, at patterns. They look at, at the, um, the cross-sections for interactions. 
So this was, for example, way back um, in the early studying of, of the atom. Um, so there was a, a plum pudding model of the atom, right? So there was uh, um, electrons were these negative point particles inside a, um, a positive field. And then th this one experimenter <clears throat> started sh shooting particles at, at, at atoms. And <clears throat> the plum model would say that most of these particles would just go, go straight through. <clears throat> and most of them did. <clears throat> but every once in a while, one would bounce back. <clears throat> a very, very small percentage of the time. And so that, that gave them the idea that, okay, there are point-like particles. We now call them protons and, and, and neutrons. Um, the, these particles that were that they were hitting, that, but they were a very, very small space within the, the atom. So the atom was mostly empty space. The electrons were <clears throat> way far away, so to speak, from the, the much smaller protons and neutrons. And so, but then we look inside the protons, we find that the proton itself and the neutrons are composed of even smaller particles, quarks and gluons and, and, and so forth. And who knows, even the quarks and gluons um, might be you know, composed of smaller particles, but we don't have the resolution in our, our colliders right now to test that. We can only go to, you know, a thousandth or ten thousandth of the diameter of a proton, I think. And at at that resolution, the quarks and gluons still look like point-like particles. It doesn't seem self-evident to me that just because, again, I'm I'm granting you the conceit that consciousness is the fu the fundamental thing. But it does not seem self-evident to me that even if consciousness is the fundamental thing that gives rise to this constricting rule set, as I describe it, mm -hmm. that we call space-time, um, that you couldn't have a theory of everything regarding space-time. Um, why do you think we have failed to get a theory of everything? In space-time. In space-time. Knowing that it's mm -hmm. the simulation, but going back to Grand Theft Auto, feels like even if I just said, oh, all I can tell you is cause and effect, that when this pixel goes here, it has this effect. And so now I can play everything's forwards or backwards. And you could in Grand Theft Auto. It has a set of rules and it adheres to those rules, right, right. period, plain and simple. And so even though it is the, um, mm. the, it is the headset, a computer program, assuming that a simulation acts like a right. computer program, space-time in this case, uh, it, it, it adheres to rules. And so when you get a quote unquote sure. bug, it is what the program is programmed to do. You just didn't intend to program it that way. Well, I, I, in that framework, yes, I agree with you that we, I think we could get a, a complete theory of space time, not a complete theory of everything, but a complete theory of space time. Mm. So, <clears throat> that, so the theory of everything for me would be, you know, space time is a trivial aspect of everything. Right. So, but, but absolutely, I think we can get a complete theory of space time <clears throat> and we'll see its limits. It, it <clears throat> falls apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So we'll, we'll see that and we'll understand that. Yeah. So it's, it's quite, quite possible. I would say though, and I like your idea about the, <clears throat> the, the program and the rules and setting up a, a framework in which you can explore um, experiences. I'll throw in a little wrinkle. You're writing computer programs. And um, <clears throat> so Alan Turing, you know, as the, sort of one of the fathers of modern computer science and, and Turing machine was, was like the first like really good theoretical framework for computer science and the universal Turing machine that, that Turing described in some of his papers um, is sort of our, our notion of a universal computer. But, the, but 
there's a, a well-known limit to what Turing machines can do. Take, again, all the integers. You know, one, two, three, up to infinity, also minus one, minus two, and so forth. And ask, think about all the functions from the integers to the integers. For example, the square function. So, you know, the square of two is four, the square of four is 16, uh, and so forth. How many functions are there? It turns out it's a big, it's, it's a bigger infinity. It's, it's, it's a, it's not accountable. It's not, it's a bigger infinity than the integers. But Turing proved that the set of computable functions is countable. So when you're programming, you're using only computable functions, but they're a, they're a much smaller infinity than all the possible functions. So right now in our current technology, we're, when we build these computer simulations, we should know that we're using a probability zero subset of all the functions that are actually available. And maybe later on we'll figure out how to do something more interesting with all these other functions. But then as we go up again, counters hierarchy, I think that, in other words, the, the kinds of rules, they're going to, are going to be very, very um, hard for our heads to understand. You can write down, if you take a class in, in theoretical computer science, you can study non-computable functions. So that you, and almost every function is non-computable. Okay, as I, as I just said, the computable functions are probability zero. Mm. The set of all functions is, is all, most, most of those functions are not computable. But in a theoretical computer science class, you will, you will actually spend some time actually studying you know, how to, to construct and prove that a certain function is not, not computable. Like the halting problem is not, is not a computable, it's, it's not a computable function, it, it, it doesn't. And so, but it's really hard for us, even though almost every function is not computable, almost every function we can think of is computable. Mm. So here we are stuck with the limitations of our headset. And, and so thinking out of the box in this simulation idea is, is, is really going to be mind-numbing because to really think out of the box, you can have to learn how to think about non-computable functions, and that is not trivial. That's not – but that's – so I just wanted to throw that – out there to just open up how complicated this this can be and 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 why the exploration because to could be. get a theory of even just the everything of space time we have to get into non computable functions. I don't know if we will or not. That's an open question, but but we should be open to that possibility. Hmm. Very and, interesting, and certainly to explore consciousness. I see no reason why we should a priori. I would say this: if someone claimed that the computable functions were all we need, I would say the burden of proof is on you. Mm. <laughs> mm. Talk about something I have not even considered. I don't know that I can wrap my head around that one yet. I have a hard time. I mean, them. I took a class and I, and I looked at that non-computable function, the halting problem, and you have to really, I mean, you have to be sober. <laughs> you have to be well-rested and you have to think really hard. At least mm. with my apparatus, you have to think really, really hard to, to even grasp it. It's yeah. not trivial. Intense. Okay, so 
when we have a hypothesis that makes predictions, we need to be able to solve, we were talking about this a few minutes ago, we need to be able to solve problems or our hypothesis needs to predict outcomes of things that we can observe but not yet explain. Um, in I can't remember if you mentioned this in your paper, but I have heard you talk about this. So dark matter, dark energy, we don't know what the hell it is, but we know that the universe would not hold together if it wasn't for that, or it wouldn't be racing apart at the way that it's racing, whatever. It wouldn't function the way that it functions now. Um, what does your consciousness as fundamental agent tell us about dark energy? Well, nothing specifically, right? So that's that, that's a big open um, question. In fact, one, one of the... Um my collaborators is a, is a student working right now on dark energy um, mm. experiments. Um, um, a, a brilliant student named Ben Nepper. Because he thinks it will yield results tied to consciousness as fundamental? Uh, no, I think it's just because it's a good thing to do at this stage in your career to mm. get that kind of experience and you know actually spend time hunting with real experiments for dark matter, so you learn the ropes. Um, I think it's it was very, and so he's doing that. Um, and who knows? You know, our our current techniques may or may not find dark matter. We 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 just don't know. Um, but it's no surprise from a point of view that says that space time is not fundamental to say that there could be influences um, on our headset that are not explicitly represented by the headset itself. They're only seen um, as uh, influences on the headset. But, and so in, one way that we're going after this in our own mathematics is we have this uh, Markovian dynamics of these conscious agents. Can you take a second to explain to people what Markovian dynamics are? Yeah, Markovian dynamics is, is fairly simple it, it, in, in concept. It, it says that um, what you do next so suppose I'm um, suppose I'm a on just say a sidewalk, and it has there are different. I could either step one step to the right or one step to the left, and and there's some probability. Maybe I, I choose to step to the right with probability of you know two thirds, and to the left probability of one third. And so you can see where where would I go over time. But the key thing about it is that my the step I'm going to take now only depends on where I am now. So where I'm going to end up next only depends on where I am now. Mm. So there's a finite memory. I don't have to know everything I've done in the past to know what's going to happen next. I only need to know where I am now. And that's the key Markov property, that you only need to really know the current state. You don't have to know the whole history to have all the, prob all the information about the probabilities for what's going to happen next. The, an analogy that I heard that I was really helpful in understanding is if you think of it as airports, some airports have more connections to other cities than other airports. You're, so if you're asking, let's say that there's five airports in question, one is isolated and one is a hub to all the rest. And then the other ones only have one or two links, whatever. Um, going back to your idea of if I'm on the isolated, uh, airport, there's only one option. So you don't need to know where I was before all of that. If you know I'm in the isolated one, you know I'm flying back to the only thing it's connected to, which is the other hub. Right. Now, when I'm at that hub that has, let's say, five options, right. now it's just a probability curve of which one I'm going to go to. But exactly once I right. go to another one of those airports, then it's like, okay, well, I could go you know, to um, 
Cincinnati, I could go to New York, I could go to LA, or I could go, um, let's say those are the only connections. But when I'm in Hawaii, if Hawaii forces me to route through LA, then you know where you're going to go. And I was like, okay, that, that at least gives a simple understanding of, oh, this is a relatively simple concept that sets aside all the history. And so from a computational standpoint, that becomes very important because when people talk about booting up a simulation of the universe, you very quickly to track every element that could possibly interact with every, if everything could interact with everything, it becomes impossible. And you would have to have a computer the size of the universe itself in order to track like a one for one atom, basically. Um, But I think I'm understanding this right, that Markovian dynamics eliminates a lot of that computational need because I don't have to, there, there is a small set of things. And once I know the probability distribution, over time, it completely stabilizes. And so when I, I know if I'm at airport C, I know the exact probability of where they're going to go next. That, that's right. So the Markovian dynamics is, uh, help simplify things um, by demanding only a finite memory instead of an infinite memory of, of the past history mm. of what, what you've been doing. Um, but you can make the memory as big as you want. So it's really not too much of a limitation either. With ni- so it's a nice formalism. So why do we care about it? Um, well, most of us don't have to deal with infinity anyway in terms of past history. So we can only – we can just use finite histories and, and, that's, and that's quite good. And it, another reason um, to be interested in Markov dynamics is we talked about computable functions. Well, Markovian kernels um, are computationally universal. So anything that can be computed with a neural net – or with a Turing, universal Turing machine can be computed with Markovian kernels. So they, they form a, they give us a nice network kind of modeling for dynamics, but they also give us universal computational abilities. And they're not limited to computable functions because the sets on which the probabilities are defined need not be computable sets. So they actually give us a window toward going beyond computation. I'm not there right now, but but that window is there in the future if we need to go there. Um, I'd, I'd lo- hopefully that will go there. But but so our, our our current model is a Markovian model of conscious agents, and then what we have to do is is we can then show that space time is just a projection of this dynamics. And so you only th- there's a lot but of states. Really fast before you move on. So just re-anchoring people that these um, conscious agents, the states that they can be in are coffee, elation, desire, headache. So when we're talking Markovian dynamics, we're talking about moving from one of those qualia states to another, a human headache versus a dolphin headache, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, help me understand why that's important that I can, like if I'm in the state of blissed out coffee taste, uh, that I have a certain probability of going somewhere else. That that feels counterintuitive. It feels like my wants and desires are really what's going to drive the next state, not the state that I'm currently in. That, that's right. So, so now we're just talking about the consciousness, not about space time, for for this question. Yes. Right. right. So there. Um, when we write down a Markovian kernel and say, okay, whatever your conscious experiences are now, uh-huh. this Markovian dis- kernel describes what 
your next conscious experiences will be probabilistically, and also um, what how you're influencing the conscious experience of others. So, so now we can ask the kind of question you're asking. So, is that's happening outside the headset? These, this is all outside the headset, right? This is all out. This is so the probability of what I do next is determined outside the headset that, that, by Markovian dynamics. That's why we're going to get to the dark energy and dark matter stuff. You are breaking my brain right now. That's so that's so that's why I brought this up is because your question was about dark energy and dark matter. So what we have to 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 get at that from this point of view, what we're going to say is look. Most of the states of this dynamics are states that are not represented in space-time. They're dark. So there are these influences that you're not going to see. When you count up all the matter and all the energy that you can see inside space-time, you're going to be missing all the stuff that, that didn't project into space-time. So, in fact, probably the dark energy and dark matter is much more than we've discovered so far. So, so that's why it's important. But <laughs> So, okay, hold on. This all really does start to feel weird when I remind myself that this is about qualia, right. the sense of it being like something. And so I'm going to make something up. Uh, dark energy is the energy created. This is why I don't understand how it could be energy, but uh, dark energy is the energy of a qualia that I will never be able to experience so it's something like an alien drinking blood wine, uh, making that up, but it has to be qualia. So it's got to be something to be like that thing. Is that right? Well, it, it's, it's even more complicated than that. It, it's not just one qualia. It's probably who knows how many countless infinities but of qualia. things like that, that, right? that, that, Exactly right. That are interacting and affecting the dynamics that we perceive inside of our space-time headset. But notice that, among the qualia are, for example, the qualia that you are about four feet from me. Uh huh. So your position, so position. Th th there's a quality. I mean, it's very, very different to experience you four feet from me than four inches from me. Max. Those are very, very so. So depth and space is qualia, and in fact, um, our qualia there sort of compresses. If I look at the like a distant mountain, and the moon rising over that mountain. The moon looks a little further than the mountain, but not much, right? Yeah, yeah, the moon's a little further. But if you were to, you know, that mountain might be, you know, 20 miles from me. The moon is a quarter million miles from right. me. So that means you have no idea that it's like orders of magnitude further away. You, so, so our qualia space of depth is quite compressed compared to what we would, might call the measured world. So like when you actually, and, and you see that in, in, in your, you know, like a Grand Theft Auto, when you're actually looking around, you only see the roads around you in a little bit. But the Grand Theft Auto world, you might be able to drive thousands of miles in, in a really complicated simulation. You don't see thousands of miles at any one time. You only see a little bit that your headset allows you to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, but because you use that same headset, and you're uh, you're not stuck in that world. It, you're at, there's actually a supercomputer that has a much bigger world than your headset, right? Than what you see right now in your headset. But it's rendering a little bit in your headset right now. So that's why the the, the mountain and the moon look about the same because they're, they're headset. We can now, of course, when we go to the moon on a rocket, now it's like going through Grand Theft Auto with your headset on and going places that you couldn't see because they were too far away in your current headset view, but you can get there eventually. And and so that also is pointing to a world outside of your headset. 
Your headset is just what the little bit of that world that you're rendering at, at any one time. Now, dark Are energy and dark matter. Getting, you're not really getting outside of your headset to go to Mars. You're getting outside of what you rendered previously. Well, so at, at any moment, you're only seeing in your headset, mm -hmm. right? But if I go to Mars, I'm still seeing in my headset. Yeah, and in Grand Theft Auto, for example, there might be a, a you know a Porsche that's you know a thousand miles away, and you're gonna have to drive like three hours in the game to get there. Mm -hmm. So you're not gonna see. It. So it's in the it's in the simulation outside of your headset right now. To get it in your headset, you're gonna have to do all this work to get it inside your headset. But it, it already existed in the software and the computer prior to that. Mm -hmm. You just don't see it in your in your headset. Understood. So so. That so all the stuff inside space time, the galaxies that we see that are far away from us and so forth, that's not dark matter, dark energy. That's that's more like the headset stuff that you see in Grand Theft Auto if you go far enough within the game. But then there's this deeper notion that there are some states in the computer that you'll never see in in Grand Theft Auto, but they could, uh, you know, subtly influence what you are seeing in Grand Theft Auto. Doesn't your thesis necessarily, no, you're not going to say yes to this, but I'm going to finish. Doesn't your thesis necessarily mean that that is some element of uh, the, I like to think of it as a blob that is consciousness cycling through, um, why would it be in the same simulation? Cycling through different qualia uh, but then I don't understand why it would be in the same simulation if it's going to be something I could never possibly interact with. Right. I mean, almost everything that the real consciousness is doing is not in our, in our headset. We have this, what we're perceiving is probability zero of what's going on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's basically, if you ask, of all the things that are being experienced in consciousness, what percent of it do, do we experience? Zero percent. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, 
I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre- and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping. 